The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. The Lord rules forever. God assumes the Lord's throne for the sake of justice. God will establish justice in the world rightly, and God will judge all people fairly. The Lord is a safe place for the oppressed, a safe place in difficult times. This is the word in black and red. Hello, and welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I am your host, Michael Belong, the wise old Lama NB, joined today by two of my most favorite guests to have on, Elle and Spencer. Y'all, it's always a treat when we get a, an Elle and Spencer episode, because that means that we're about to dive deep on some of the nerdiest shit you can find out about... <laughs> the Bible, because Ellen Spencer bring wonderful perspectives every time. So we'll go ahead and dive right on in because we have a long, a long passage to get through in Genesis 35 through 36. God said to Jacob, get up, go to Bethel and live there. Build an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you ran away from your brother Esau. Jacob said to his household and to everyone who is with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you. Clean yourselves and change your clothes. Then let's rise and go up to Bethel, so that I can build an altar there to the God who answered me when I was in trouble, and who has been with me wherever I've gone. So they gave Jacob all of the foreign gods they had, as well as the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the Tebarinth in Shechem. When they set out, God made all of the surrounding cities fearful, so that they didn't pursue Jacob's sons. Jacob and all of the people with him arrived in Luz, otherwise known as Bethel, in the land of Canaan. He built an altar there and named the place El Bethel, because God had revealed God's self to him there when he ran away from his brother. Rebekah's nurse Deborah died and was buried at Bethel under the oak, and Jacob named it Alan Bukath. God appeared to Jacob again while he was on his way back from Padan Aram and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but your name will be Jacob no longer. No, your name will be Israel. And God named him Israel. God said to him, I am El Shaddai, be fertile and multiply. A nation, even a large group of nations, will come from you. Kings will ascend from your own children. The land I gave to Abraham and to Isaac, I give to you, and I will give you the land to your descendants after you. Then God ascended, leaving him alone in the place where God spoke to him. So Jacob set up a sacred pillar, a stone pillar, at the place God spoke to him. He poured an offering of wine on it and then poured oil over it. Jacob named the place Bethel, where God spoke to him. They left Bethel, and when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into hard labor. During her difficult labor, the midwife said to her, Don't be afraid, you have another son. As her life faded away, just before she died, she named him Ben-Oni, but his father named him Benjamin. Rachel died and was buried near the road to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar on her grave. It's the pillar on Rachel's tomb that's still there today. Israel continued his trip and pitched his tent farther on near the tower of Adair. While Israel stayed in that place, Reuben went up and slept with Bilhah, his father's secondary wife, and Israel heard about it. Jacob had twelve sons. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, 
Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servants, were Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servants, were Gad and Asher. These were Jacob's sons born to him in Padan Aram. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, that is, Kerith Arah, this is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac lived as immigrants. At the age of 180 years, Isaac took his last breath and died. He was buried with his ancestors after a long, satisfying life. His sons Esau and Jacob buried him. These are the descendants of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau married Canaanite women, Adah, the daughter of the Hittite Elam, Oholibamah, the daughter of Anah, son of the Hittite Zibion, and Basimoth, the daughter of Ishmael and sister of Nebaioth. Adah gave birth to Eliphaz for Esau. Basimoth gave birth to Reul. Oholibamah gave birth to Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are Esau's sons, born to him in the land of Canaan. Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and everyone in his household, and his livestock, all of his animals, and all of the property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. And he moved away from the land of Canaan, and from his brother Jacob. They had so many possessions that they couldn't live together. The land where they lived as immigrants couldn't support all of their livestock. So Esau, that is Edom, lived in the mountains of Seir. These are the descendants of Esau, the ancestor of Edom, which lies in the mountains of Seir. These are the names of Edom's sons, Eliphaz, son of Esau's wife, Adah, and Reuel, son of Esau's wife, Basimah. Eliphaz's sons were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was the secondary wife of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she gave birth to Amalek for Eliphaz. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Adah. These are Reuel's sons, Nahath, Zerah, Shema, and Mizah. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Basimoth. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Oholabamah, the daughter of Anah, Zibian's sons. She gave birth to Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the tribal chiefs from Esau's sons, the sons of Eliphaz, Esau's oldest son, Chief Teman, Chief Omar, Chief Zepho, and Chief Kenaz, Chief Korah, Chief Gatam, and Chief Amalek. These are the tribal chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. They are Adah's sons. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's sons, Chief Nahath, Chief Zerah, Chief, Chief Shema, and Chief Mizah. These are the tribal chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. They are the sons of Esau's wife, Basimoth. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Oholibamah, Chief Jeush, Chief Jamal, and Chief Korah. They are the tribal chiefs of Esau's wife, Oholibamah, the daughter of Anah. These are the sons of Esau, who is Edom, and these are their tribal chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, who lived in the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anah, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the Horite tribal leaves, Seir's sons, in the land of Edom. Lotan's sons are Hori and Heman, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are Shobal's sons, Alvin, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are Zibion's sons, Ai and Anah. Anah is the one who found water in the desert while pasturing his father Zibion's donkeys. These are Dashan's sons, Hemda, Eshban, Ithran, and Cheron. These are Ezer's sons, Bilhan, Zaban, and Akan. These are Dashan's sons, Uz and Aran. These are the Horite tribal chiefs, chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anah, Dashan, Ezer, and Dashan. These are the Horite tribal chiefs, listed according to their chiefs in the land of Seir. These are the kings who ruled in the land of Edom before a king ruled over the Israelites. Balah, Beor's son, ruled in Edom. His city's name was Dinhabah. After Balah died, Jobab, son of Zerah from Bozrah, became king. After Jobab died, Husham from the land of the Temanites became king. 
After Husham died, Hadad, Badad's son, who defeated Midian in the countryside of Moab, became king. His city's name was Avith. After Hadad died, Samla from Masreka became king. After Samla died, Shaul from Rehoboth on the river became king. After Shaul died, Baal Hanan, Akbor's son, became king. After Baal Hanan, Akbor's son died, Hadar became king. His city's name was Pal, and his wife's name was Mehetabal, the daughter of Matred and granddaughter of Mehazab. These are the names of Esau's tribal chiefs according to their families, their locations and their names. Chief Chimna, Chief Timna, Chief Alva, Chief Jeheth, Chief Oholabama, Chief Allah, Chief Pinan, Chief Kanaz, Chief Temen, Chief Mibzar, Chief Magdiel, and Chief Iram. These are Edom's tribal chiefs according to their settlements in the land they possessed. This is Esau, the ancestor of the Edomites. And that's the end of part one. Thank you guys for coming. (laughs) (laughs) This passage is a lot of names, and they're complicated names, but the point here is that there is an interwoven series of families that are ruling the area of Edom, right? And that Esau becomes Edom. Now, again... Because the Bible is this book that was written from a number of different sources, this, particularly the book of Genesis, right, what's probably happening here is, again, we're seeing a couple of different little lists and some inconsistencies here that are sort of smashed together to say, oh, this person was this person and related to that person. It's possible that Oholabama was both the daughter of Anah and the wife of Esau and a chief later on, or perhaps there were different people that were going on. There's all sorts of things here happening here. But what's really important here is that Esau's children are the people of Edom, who are the cousins of the people of Israel, who the rest of this story is about. And what's really important to note here is that the people of Edom and the people of Israel will go on to have a terrible rivalry against each other. In fact, if you read the book of Obadiah, the book of Obadiah is essentially entirely about how Obadiah is wishing the destruction of the Edomites uh, because of the rivalry that they've had, because the Edomites sided with Babylon in the destruction of Judah. And so um, they absolutely hate the Edomites, right? They are the worst possible people because you collaborated with these people who came in contact, who conquered us. And so th- that is part of what's being set up here. I want to go through and just touch on a couple of things that are happening earlier in this story, right? So first off, we see Jacob gathering together his household and saying, Get rid of the foreign gods. There are no more foreign gods allowed. Now the only god that we worship is the god of Israel, the god who Jacob has known as El Shaddai. Now, longtime listeners, you will remember, what does El Shaddai mean? El Shaddai is one of these words that is associated with fertility. It is El Shaddai, the hills, very literally, but euphemistically probably means the many-breasted god. Um, David Beale has a great paper about how El Shaddai means the many-breasted god, and here again we're seeing God flip out her boobs to say, go and be fertile, and I will take care of feeding your children, right? When we're talking about in the next book, the land of milk and honey, it is baby food, right? The kind of baby food that God is providing to allow people to be able to survive. Let's talk about the cycle of getting rid of idols that's happening here in this story. Just think of the, the importance of giving up the, they gave up their idols to go to Bethel, to go to the house of God, go up to where God is, where Jacob had seen God and had a the great vision that he had there. 
uh, to to be able to go back to that presence of God. They there was things in their life that they had to get rid of. They had to cast off. Yeah. Well, and this is a very explicitly a callback to the fact that when Jacob and Rachel and Leah are leaving from Laban's house and they're trying to escape after these years of being oppressed, what does Rachel do? Rachel steals the household idols <laughs> that are being kept by Laban. And so it's it's as if the the authors here coming after it after this, the deuteromistic authors who are writing from a perspective where it's like, oh, you have idols? That's not cool. Definitely seem to rise to, to throw in here into this story. They get rid of all the foreign gods. You can't have any of those. They're they're strictly not allowed. So my study Bible says that this is the only time foreign gods are specifically mentioned in Genesis. It's definitely implied with Rachel stealing the household idols, that doesn't necessarily mean those are gods that are being worshipped in Laban's Laban's household. Yeah, this is the first time that foreign gods are even brought up, right? The idea that there are gods that are specific to different cultures is very much so accepted in Genesis. Genesis is not a monotheistic book in very many ways. This is one of the few verses that are expressly monotheistic. No, we can only worship our God, right? Or there is only one God to worship, and those are false idols, right, is the implication. But Genesis does not reject the idea of other gods. The first and second creation story, I think, are basically the Jewish way of saying our God is the most powerful God. Our God is the one who made everything. But monotheism is not really the dominant ideology when most of these stories are being written down, right? And so that's why it's so important that Jacob is associating with the God of their ancestors, right? The God of Jacob's ancestors, the God I gave, the land I gave to Abraham and to Isaac, that relationship is what's so important there. It's my God. Um, you can have your own God, but it's my God that I'm clinging to here. One one thing that I read as I was, uh, I think it was some of the rabbinical commentaries, that the majority opinion from what, what I read is that Jacob and his family, they were not worshiping these idols. They simply had these idols and that having the idol in and of itself was not not a sin, not not something sinful. And the, the fact that they they still had to get rid of these idols to go to Bethel kind of calls to to the book of Leviticus, one of the one of the insights that I've I've got there. When you look at all the different offerings and sacrifices and, and rituals in there, there's uh, I believe it's the majority of them are actually not about finding forgiveness for sin. It's not about atonement. In fact, the majority of them are about becoming holy, which is a separate uh, separate action, separate activity from repenting or from atoning. So I thought I thought it was interesting that they had to do this not not to get rid of the sin among them, but to become more holy so they could come closer to God. Yeah, I I think getting rid of the idols goes along with the, you know, taking out your earrings and the ritual cleansing. It's it, it's symbolic of a of a spring cleaning, a new start, a, a new beginning to the culture. Yeah, absolutely. Getting rid of sin in our lives is so that we can become more holy, right? The point here is not that we are worried about uh, about sinning so much as we are worried about making heaven here, 
now, right? That's the point of our faith. It's not just escaping from the sin that had us, but actually living into this beautiful thing that we, that we are living in now. And here, as Jacob and his family are going up to Bethel, Bethel is literally the house of God, right? And so, so it's just linguistically funny that he built an altar and named it El Bethel, the God of the house of God, is, is, a funny, uh, is a funny little phrase here. But it's to emphasize how holy this place is, right? That, that Jacob comes here and, and doesn't just come expecting that the house of God is there, but specifically that he met God at the house of God. And that's so important. So they go from there, and Deborah is the nurse for Rebecca, um, and she dies. And when that happens, the, the whole family seems to be just distraught. Jacob's bonus mom dies, right? Um, Deborah is the, is the nurse, probably the wet nurse for Rebecca. And so he names it Alan Bakuth. My friends who have done all the nerdy digging, can you tell me what Alan Bakuth means? The weeping oak. So why is it important that it's a, that it's a weeping oak, right? Specifically, Alan Bakuth is important because Alan Bakuth can be referenced or contrasted to the Oaks of Mamre. And the Oaks of Mamre are this place that is basically a tree that seems to have always been growing, right? And it's also, it specifically means strength or fatness, right? And here instead, we have this oak that is an oak of weeping. It's this strong contrast to, to that oak where God had been encountered. And here, in the same place where God had just been encountered, there is room for weeping, right? And so we have that yes and the this is such a powerful place that I have literally encountered God here. And this is also a place where I am experiencing profound loss and profound mourning. I'm losing a woman who had been with me my entire life, who is like my mother to me. And remember that Jacob is closest with his mother, who was uh, of whom he was the favorite. Right. <laughs> and so he's particularly close with this woman. And then she passes away. And it seems like in the midst of this morning, right, that is when God appears to Jacob and says, your name is Jacob, but your name will be Jacob no longer. Your name was the heel grabber, the one, the usurper, the one who comes underneath. But no, now your name will be Israel. And Israel, uh, my friends, tell me what Israel means. Rashi's interpretation, uh, the quote from him is, thy name shall not be called anymore Jacob which means a man who comes as a worker and a trickster, but it should be Israel, which signifies prince and chief. And then a more literal translation, you could say he who struggles with God or he who lets God prevail. Kind of contradictory, but both both valid translations. L? Oh, just, just wrestling with God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. God named him the one who wrestles with God, right? And... And I think that it's beautiful that that's happening in the midst of the struggle, right? That Jacob has been through a lot of struggles, right? But here he's losing his bonus mom. And that is when he gets to be called the one who struggles with. And I think that so often Christians in particular lose an understanding of how to struggle with God, right? Like we act as if we can't get angry with God because, you know, if we do, then I don't know, God will come down and smite us or something. Um, <laughs> but that's just not the case. God loves us despite what else might be happening. God loves us in the midst of all of the, that suffering. And so it's in that moment 
that God comes and says, you are not called Jacob anymore. You are no longer the heel grabber. The, the woman who knew you by that name most is now gone. And in her honor, because you have been struggling with her loss, I will name you the one who wrestles with God. So another thing I read uh, while I was researching in, for this episode was that with Deborah's death, it's implied that Rebecca also died. It's double extra weeping because like like we don't get any resolution for like what happens to Rebecca anyways. So it, it's heavily implied that Deborah's death is like also Rebecca's death. Now that like the previous generation is gone, like he can go forth and be the new nation, be the one that's that wrestles with God. And I also think what distinguishes this God versus all the other gods generally like of all polytheistic cultures is you're allowed to criticize and be like moody with God. Whereas like everyone else, like if you look at Athena wrong, she will turn you into a spider. If you like give Zeus the side eye, you're done. And you don't even have to be doing anything to get the wrath of another one of the gods. They, it's just their will to do whatever the fuck they want. Whereas like this one actually does try to have a relationship with you even if it's like weird it's it's better than just like being suffering under the total will of like a crazy person basically well and that goes back to like again the conflicting conceptions of god right that we have in these various ancient near eastern religions where under the mythology of the babylonians for example the reason that humans exist are to, to work as the slaves of the gods, right? But here in this story, we see that humans exist because God wants us to, <laughs> and God wants to delight in us. Now, it, it also strikes me that this name change happens between the first of three major deaths in Jacob's life, uh, this second one here being Rachel's death with the birth of Benjamin, or Ben-Oni, um, as he's known. Uh, could y'all talk a little bit about uh, the the meanings of these names and why it's significant that this name change is happening? I know for Benjamin, his his first name Ben Benoni, uh, that meant my son of sorrow, which uh, Benjamin means son of strength, which sounds it's just a lot better of a name. So it's completely understandable why Jacob would change that. It's it would be pretty sad for Benjamin to grow up knowing he was the son of sorrow instead of, you know, like the capping off of his mom's love. <laughs> another another translation I saw for Benjamin is son of the South. Benjamin's the only, the, the only son of Jacob that was born in Canaan in this Southern land from where they were originally. As we're thinking about this loss here, it is really worth remembering, right? Son of suffering being changed into son of strength is really like Jacob trying to take something that's awful and turn it into something that is much better. This suffering that happens and the fact that that is connected to very modern day suffering. One small thought on a previous topic. Uh, going back to the, the, the trees, the oak, oaks of memory and the oak of the oak, Alan Bakuth. Uh, there's a third tree, just a few verses earlier. It's the, the terebinth at Shechem, where Jacob buried the, the idols, the, the foreign gods, the rings in their ears. And 
that was just interesting because Terebinth is the the note that I had for it is that it's specifically a tree that does not give fruit. So he leaves that leaves that uh, I guess mammon would be the right word here. Leaves that behind. Says this is this is going under the tree. This is not bearing fruit. And then they go to El Bethel to Bethel and make the altar El Bethel. Yeah. So basically the long and short of it is that the tomb of Rachel has been a holy site for all the Abrahamic faiths, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. In fact, it was named the third holiest Jewish site because a a particular uh, group of dedicated folks became really dedicated to Rachel's tomb. And unfortunately, there have been there has been a lot of death surrounding that that area. That because it was it was a shared place for all people when Israel decided to to by de facto annex it, build a barrier around it, erase the uh, Muslim signatures there, the the signs of the mosque and all those sort of things, and instead built a wall around it so that only Jewish people could access it. Cut off the Palestinian people from this symbol that had been a thing that united them. Here in this story we are seeing a story of a family that should have belonged together, right? A family that should have stuck together. The Edomites and the Israelites should have been one people who worked together to resist the powers of Babylon. Obadiah is all about how these people did not care about each other enough to fight against the Babylonian Empire. And yet here in the story, we see repeating again that instead of using this site as a place where all could share and learn about each other's humanity and and share in the rituals here, it's been restricted to just the few. And people, instead of being able to work together against the actual powers that stand opposed to them, the anti-Semites of the world who are seeking to destroy both Israel and Palestine, both the Jewish people and the Palestinian people, instead it has become this place of contention, a place of war, a place of conquest that Israel has conquered to the detriment other neighbors. I do want to mention because uh, I was editing Scott's episode last week, I think, and Scott brought up uh, the wonderful points that, you know, in Obadiah, the Jewish people are really upset that the Elamites were not helping out and with Babylon and were cheering about Babylon, but the Elamites were enslaved during King Solomon's reign. So, like, it's it's not it's not chill that the cycle continues but it's also understandable that like when these people are constantly trying to oppress one another like the 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 eye for an eye continues the hate for hate the wishing destruction upon each other that's understandable but it, only by like forgiving these past transgressions can you like actually move on and build bre- a better future and you know that's that's also the same that we have as leftists trying to like oh, well, you weren't there for me then, and, like, da-da-da-da-da. Well, like, if we're here for each other now and in this moment and continue on, like, and actually show up for each other, then we can forgive the past. Like, Yeah. (laughs) There's the cycle, the the cycle that we first start seeing here of getting rid of those idols, right? And when they're able to do that, they're able to come together. They're able to struggle with God. They're able to meet God in the midst of their suffering. They're able to do all these other things. And yet we keep accumulating idols that distract us from those things. 
And those idols often cause us to fight against each other because they become an idol rather than what we should actually be doing together, right? Having Rachel's tomb became an idol for Israel that caused them to no longer love their neighbor in the way that they ought to, and thus caused this great division that perpetuates a cycle of violence that goes all the way back to this story. And, uh, And it begins right here in, once again, because of wealth, right? <laughs> We're going to jump down to verse 7 of chapter 36. They had so many possessions, they couldn't live together. The land where they lived as immigrants couldn't support all of their livestock, right? And when we see this happening earlier, we see Abraham and Lot have to separate because they are they have so much wealth, they have so much money, they have so many things, that they're not able to actually sit together. They're not able to actually be with one another (laughs) because they have so much wealth that their servants are fighting right and we see that happen again and it starts here gets in the way of their loving relationship with each other and so divides these families that results in a, a rivalry between these people for the rest of the bible and that all happens that division happens after Jacob and Esau finally come together to celebrate the death of their father, the the third death that happens in Jacob's life in quick succession. But for this little moment, they are able to care for each other and bury Isaac together. What were your thoughts on y'all's thoughts on that? Uh, I found it interesting that the authors of, of Genesis here, they put Isaac's death in this, this part here. It was like they were almost forcing it into having all these these deaths in succession. So when you look at the the age of 180 years and you kind of do some of the math and line it up, chronologically, Isaac's death doesn't happen until after the events of uh, I think chapter 37, after Joseph has already been sold into slavery is when Isaac passes away. But the biblical authors weren't entirely concerned with, with, with it being chronological. So they, yeah, they moved it here just to have the, the themes here together as what can we be taught from this themes are more significant in mythology than math is so (laughs) (laughs) and it's almost like this is a series of myths not a science textbook or something (laughs) but i mean there's nothing like dad's funeral to bring the kids together (laughs) there is one phrase here uh on isaac's death that i really jumped out to me a lot is uh he was buried with his ancestors the king james translation it's gathered unto his people or gathered unto his kin. I, I just love that idea of gathering together into, into a family, whether it's, it's at death or just, just that concept of, of gathering together into a family. And yeah, there's a couple different things that I, I really got from that. But one, one thing that I connected the dots just like a day ago was the, the concept of, of coming in as opposed to coming out. First off, it's it's a indigenous, like Aboriginal two spirit concept. So, as a straight white guy, I'm entirely unqualified to talk about this, and I, I apologize to all our two spirit listeners if if we if there be any, which I hope there are. Coming in is is more of finding as a, a as a two spirit person, as a LGBT person, finding your interdependent identity is one of the phrases that comes up a lot finding how you connect into the greater circle how you connect with your with your culture with your community with your past with your present with with everything the whole circle of everything gathered unto his people kind of that that same concept that you you gather 
gather those that you love around you. You gather gather yourself together into the the great whole of everything. It just strikes me that our culture does not have a very good concept of death. Like, first off, we don't have a good concept of what happens after death, right? Because some people are like, oh, I'm going to go float away and be an angel, Uh, you know, or, or, you know, you're going to hell and you're going to burn there forever. Um, You know, those, those seem to be the two options in Christianity. But most of us just don't want to talk about death. Like most of us, there was, I I think there was a a statistic, (laughs) I'm not going to quote the right numbers, but basically like the number of people who have seen a, a dead person is dramatically lower than it was in any previous generation. Like seeing dead people was just sort of normal. Like you would have gone and seen a dead body when you had a funeral with them, right? You would have gone and seen, or, you know, you might've been in the room while somebody died in front of you because a lot of people lived in one room houses. And so you would have seen your elderly grandparents pass away, or you would have seen your little sibling pass away. And so like the, Closeness to death is something that we are very far away from as a culture. And this is like one of the first times in human history that that's happened. And it's weird for us, right? It's a weird thing for human existence to be as separated from death. And so this is not something that's true of the ancient Near East. I don't, I, that I've never, I've never seen the evidence of this. And so the idea that you can be gathered in with your family, I think is a much more beautiful translation of this and, and better for the time buried with his ancestors is just like he was buried in the same place we see a plot of ground that is next to abraham but i do really like that that image that he was gathered in with his ancestors with his kin especially because this is a culture that doesn't necessarily have a view of the afterlife that that doesn't have a concept of what comes after and so what comes after is being with your family right living on through your family and that being so important that Isaac goes and is buried with Abraham, with his ancestors in this way. That really brings us to the end of of this long series of names, right? One of the things that is just really common throughout this, this series of names is that we see that the big examples are going from Eliphaz, God is fine gold or God is agile, right? This name that is very clearly a name about El, about Elohim, about the God of the people of Judah, the God of the people of Israel and Israel's ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, which then throughout the process of this family tree eventually becomes Baal Manah. Um, So Baal Manah means Lord of Grace, but which God is that? That's not El, that's Baal right? That is a different God. That is the slow separation from the God that your family worshiped and the assumption of another God, the assumption of a God of a different culture, but most importantly of of a God that teaches us not that we are the image of God, but instead a God that says, you are my subjects, you are my slaves, you are my product, and I'm going to engage in a parasocial relationship with you <laughs> rather than a personal relationship. Okay, so the issue I have with this is this is all from the Israelites' perspective. And over time, language changes. And, you know, like, like Baal means Lord. And, like, that's just, like, a casual, like, it's, it's the Lord. It's Baal. <laughs> 
that could just be after the Elamites split off and the Israelites split off, the language developed differently. And it's the Israelites' perspective that it's a different God, in at least in this sense. This is this is the vibe I feel. Yeah, Baal is as as a title, it's it's also used to refer to the God of Israel to refer to Jehovah in places in the Bible. But yeah, as, as you get like further on into the Bible, there are places where the name Baal in previous in chronologies, Baal, or like originally in the early, like early parts of the Bible, it does just mean Lord. And it, it's a title that's applied to people, to the actual God Baal that comes up later on, and also to Jehovah. So yeah, it, it it is a term that evolves over time, and you you see that in later genealogies that there were names of names of kings and such that had Baal in their name. That it is overwritten, and can't remember the Hebrew word that they put in place of Baal, but it's the word that means shame, because that at that point Baal had taken on this meaning of this this foreign god. So those those names were were changed from having Baal that most likely referenced the God of Israel to having shame. What kept coming to me as we were like looking at these names and looking at all these different meanings um, is especially with like the, the God is gold name down to like, like some more negative names, like, uh, like Korah means bald. And that's like referring to like this like empty spot in between like like the gap in their in their relationship. Bella is destruction. Bayor is a burning, consuming. Yeah, there there are some really negative meanings to these words, but I also wonder like these are Hebrew words and the Elamites may not have spoken Hebrew. These may not have been the names that they gave themselves, especially like further down the line when they become inner enemies. Cause you can see this, like this clear dissension from like positive names from the, from the top into like much more negative meanings down, down when they're actually like, they're the people that the Israelites are in conflict with. And what that reminded me of is so the ancient Puebloans used to be referred to as the Anasazi. And the Anasazi is a Navajo term for uh, the ancient Puebloan peoples, which means the enemy ancestors, which is not what the Hopi and the rest of the descendants of the ancient Puebloans uh, refer to their family as. The first Anglo-American to put down on paper like what the Delia was on the ancient Puebloan sites. He worked with a bunch of Navajo people. He knew that the term meant uh, enemy ancestors, and he just didn't care to like actually find out what these people would refer, like actually be referred to as by the descendants of the ancient Puebloans. And later archaeologists were just like, it would be too much to like give it a new name. We're, we're just going with the Anasazi. And that has, you know, been in American textbooks since the the late 1800s and has only been recently changed in like school kids textbooks these recent years into the ancient or, or the ancient Puebloans, which is a much, it's a much better term and a much more preferred term rather than like 
enemy ancestor, which that kind of like language manipulation, going in and finding out what these Hebrew names for these LOM peoples were, it, some of them, it gives me the vibe of the enemy ancestor. Yeah. And let me just list off a series that really just affirms that reading of it, right? You probably wouldn't name your kid Worn Out, Depleted, or Great Agitation, or The Twist, or Wild Goat, or Thresher, Destruction, Burning, To Call Shrilly, or Hastily, or <laughs> or To Isolate and Separate, right? Or best yet, the ruins and sins, iniquities. Um, (laughs) Those are all words that for some reason, I don't imagine you're actually naming your kid, right? But these are basically like the names of the enemies, right? The names of the enemy ancestors that exactly what you just said, Elle. I mean, and you know what? Maybe the Elamites would have called Benjamin Benoni, son of sorrow, you killed your mom. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i love that ben and i is just like the the thing that they call him on the school ground when he's gotten <laughs> he's gotten uh, uh, bullied a little too much um, <laughs> it is is important to remember that this this thing d- didn't only happen to people in the past nations in the past like the the pueblos or it, it's also many many nations now, many first nations, the, the names that they're known by is also still on, under the same thing. For example, there's the blood tribe. Of course, the name they have for themselves isn't blood. That's that comes from, from the Cree who are like, they're the blood thirsty people. So that's why in English we call them the blood tribe, but they're, they're the Kainawa. Well, and it is also worth remembering that like the media is very actively right now, trying to rename the people, right? And the Palestinian people, right? They've even begun moving away from the word Palestine, right? They're not Palestinians in men- in much of the news media. They're Gazans, right? They're uh, residents of the West Bank, right? They are not to be considered an actual nation, right? Because if they're an actual nation, then you can recognize that there's a genocide happening against them. But if they're just the Gazans and the West, the people on the West Bank, then, you know, they're just the people who live there rather than a targeted assault on a people group who are facing the destruction of their people. And let us, let us remind everyone that Bethel and Bethlehem, these holy places here are located in the West Bank that are like Jesus Christ himself was a small child in the West Bank. Well, that's a that's a note to end on. No, it's not. It's not because the most important thing that we still have to still have to um, talk about is what the fuck, Reuben. The text says went and slept with. Um, the implication there is that Bilhah did not have uh, did not consent to this relationship, and Reuben is actually going to go on to to basically like spend the rest of his life trying to make up for this situation. Reuben is, of course, the guy who is the most concerned about Benjamin being taken by Joseph uh, much down the road. But when we hear this story about Reuben, we have to remember that this is going on in the background, that this little throwaway line is happening because it will show up in how is in how Israel treats Reuben. It will show up in how Reuben is apportioned in the book of Numbers. It will show up in all of these different things that Reuben 
is constantly being evaluated based on this one verse. And it is, you know, if anything was going to stick around with you for the rest of time, it seems like sexually assaulting adjacent mom is probably up there uh, with that. It's also just like so weird because this also happens after Dinah's assault and the subsequent uh, murdering of an entire city. Maybe Ruben should have been banished from the family. Like, I don't, I don't know. Just thoughts. Just thoughts. Yeah. There's so much going on. So much weird going on here where, where it's like the fact that Bill High is, you know, quote unquote, secondary wife, where she is basically like a concubine for Israel, that like this, this happens is this something that was just allowed in their culture? Like this will happen again when one of David's children go in and sleep with some of his concubines. And like, it's a, it's an attempt to basically usurp the father, right? It's a way to, to cuckold, honestly, to cuckold the parent and to say, now I have power over what you used to have power over. Right. And that's just evil, right? Like the, the fact that the women are in no way, willing participants in this scenario now i'm just tired and sad do you do you you want a fun midrash story (laughs) yes yes please all right uh this is the midrash for 36 24 this is what happened with the donkeys and the sons of zibion were aja and ana this is ana who found the yimim in the wilderness when he fed the asses of zibion his father And it came to pass while he was feeding the asses of his father, driving them to the wilderness into the pasture as heretofore, and approaching one of the deserts on the seashore opposite the wilderness of the people. And behold, a very great storm came from the other side of the sea, and it rested over the asses in the pasture. (laughs) And they were stunned and stood still, all of them. And after wards, 120 great, horrible animals emerged from the wilderness on the other side of the sea, and they came all to the place of the asses and stood there. And those animals were on their lower half the shape of the sons of men, but on the upper half were in the shape of bears and some in the shape of apes, and they had tails behind, hanging down from the shoulders and sweeping the ground like the tails of the dochapath. <laughs> And those animals mounted the asses and rode away with them, and they were not to be found to this very day. And one of those animals approached Anan, dealt him a blow with his tail, and fled from the place. And when he saw those these things, he was greatly afraid of his life. And he too fled and escaped to the city, and he related unto his father and his brothers all that hath befallen him. And many men went in search of the asses, but they could not find him. And Anah and his brothers never dared approach that place again, for they were in great fear of their lives. And the children of Anah and the son, the sons of Seir were blah, 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 and it goes on. But um, so Anah like, took them donkeys out. And he lost them, and that's just like he <laughs> he told his family like these monsters came out from the woods, and, and they were so scary, and they 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 took the donkeys and rode away with them. <laughs> <laughs> and th- you see, they hit me. That is the most bizarre story. <laughs> what the hell? You know what? I think it was Bigfoot. He came out. 
and took the donkeys. It was Bigfoot. (laughs) All right. Well, with that, we're going to be off. (laughs) All right. Elle and Spencer, thank you once again for being a part of this podcast and for having a wonderful time with me. I always appreciate y'all. And thank you, dear listener, for being a part of this community. Please come and join the Discord so that we don't just have a parasocial relationship, but so that I can really love you for you. Now, Pass Micah, take it away. Thank you, Future Micah. And of course, you, our wonderful listener. Together, we have made a wonderful and growing community on Discord that I look forward to being a part of every day. Your generous support on Patreon has already greatly increased the quality of our podcast, including this very outro. As an extra little thank you, you can get episodes early along with a bunch of other cool perks. Please follow the link in the show notes to join our Discord, Patreon, and all of the other things mentioned throughout this episode. If you would like to reach me directly, you can reach me through the Discord or by email at thewordinblackandred at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. Now go. And do not let wealth be a means of separating you one from another, but strive for community, because that is what it means to be human. Shalom. If you've listened this far into the podcast and you listen to all the episodes, you may be developing a parasocial relationship with Micah. If you feel that, now is your, now is your uh, prompt to pause the podcast and reach out, touch some grass. <laughs>